0: Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. As he took his seat, the conspirators gathered about him, as if to pay their respects. And straight away, Tilius Simba, who had assumed the lead, came nearer as though to ask something. And then, when Caesar, with a jester, put him off to another time, Simba caught his toga by both shoulders... Then, as Caesar cried, "'Why? This is violence!' One of the caskers stabbed him from one side just below the throat. Caesar caught Casker's arm and ran it through with his stelis, but as he tried to leap onto his feet he was stopped by another wound. When he saw that he was beset on every side by drawn daggers, he muffled his head in his robe and at the same time drew down its lap to his feet with his left hand to fall more decently, with the lower part of his body also covered." And in this wise, he was stabbed with three and twenty wounds, uttering not a word, but merely a groan at the first stroke. Though some have written that when Marcus Brutus rushed at him, he said in Greek, You too, my child? All the conspirators made off, and he lay there, lifeless for some time. And finally, three common slaves put him on a litter and carried him home, with one arm hanging down. The Life of the Twelve Caesars by Suetonius 121 CE welcome to the other half. Episode 5.4, Sevilla, the mother of an honourable man. Last time, blue-blooded Sevilla is born and grows up in the last century of the Roman Republic. After two semi-successful marriages to, frankly, fairly average men, she shacks up with Julius Caesar, a rising star who is leading the Roman legions to glory and gaining massive popularity among the people. She had money, position, and independence. She had four children, all married, and settled. And she was in love with one of history's great Lotharios. Life was good, but everything was about to come crashing down as the Roman Republic entered its death spiral. Not many would survive the next two decades of civil war. Sevilia would make it her sole mission to ensure that all of her family would make it through on top but doing so meant she would have to choose between her son and the man she loved. Who would she choose? Before we find out, though, I would like to thank all of my amazing supporters on Patreon. Your monthly donations mean a great deal to me, and mean this show remains free for everyone, forever. If you would like to become one of my patrons and support the show, then head on over to patreon.com forward slash the other half podcast. You can also follow the show on Facebook and Twitter, where we post maps, pictures and other bonus content from the episodes. To all my new listeners, welcome. To the rest of you, welcome back. Civil wars are always nasty. They pit friend against friend, parents against children, brothers against sisters. Those you love become enemies, and neighbourhoods you grew up in become battlefields. Civil institutions are weaponized, and all casualties are suffered by people once considered to be of the same nation. When war broke out in 49 BCE between Caesar and the Senate, led by Pompey, Sevilla was put immediately in a most terrible bind. She hated Pompey. He had been responsible for the death of her first husband, and was in love with Caesar. Her brother, Cato the Younger, was one of Caesar's most ardent opponents, as was her son-in-law, Gaius Cassius, though her other two sons-in-law backed Caesar. She may have expected her son to also back Caesar, but no. Perhaps surprisingly, he backed the other side, the cause of the man who had ordered his father's death. Why? Well, Brutus may not have been a perfect man, but he had firmly held principles. He believed in the Republic, and saw Caesar as a greater threat to it than Pompey. Caesar's invasion of Italy met with little resistance. He was the better general, and had experienced battle-hardened troops that would walk through the gates of hell for him. Not wanting to be slaughtered, Pompey led his army east into Greece and prepared for a major confrontation there. The two armies met at Pharsalus, where, despite being heavily outnumbered, Caesar won a crushing victory. Pompey fled to Egypt, where he was betrayed and murdered. Brutus fought at Pharsalus, but after his victory, Caesar made a point of ensuring that he had survived. According to Plutarch, quote, Caesar was distressed, we are told, when Brutus was not to be found, but when he was brought into his presence safe and sound, he was pleased beyond measure. Brutus was not the only man that Caesar forgave following the battle. Forgiveness, indeed, was one of his signature moves. Being on the wrong side of a civil war would typically mean losing wealth and property at best, and your head at worst. But Caesar practised clemency. If you fought him, and did so honourably, but then swore loyalty, you could go on and live your life in peace. Brutus, though, does seem to have been an extra special case, likely because of Servilia. We're not entirely sure what it was that she did during the war, but she would most likely have stayed in Rome, anxiously waiting for news. One can only imagine the turmoil in her mind, caught between wanting her lover to prevail, but her son, on the opposite side, to survive. It must have been such an incredible relief to, for her to hear that all was well. Somehow, she had gotten the exact result that she'd wanted. And not only had her son survived, but he was rewarded for his vault with an appointment to command the armies in Cisalpine Gaul, which is the portion of northern Italy stretching from the Alps down to modern Tuscany. We don't know what role Sevilla played in Brutus' reconciliation with Caesar. He was hardly the only pro-Pompeian man that swore loyalty to him after fastness and received forgiveness. But it's notable that few of Caesar's forgiven enemies got as prized or influential at posting afterwards as Brutus did. It seems indisputable to me that Caesar's relationship with Servilia did have some influence here. Servilia would not have seen Caesar for some time, as he would spend much of the next few years in Africa fighting off the final vestiges of Pompeian resistance. While over there, he encountered, probably, the most infamous woman in all of ancient history, and certainly Caesar's most famous mistress, Cleopatra. Between late 48 and early 47 BCE, the two carried on a passionate love affair that set tongues wagging at a furious rate. Sevilia knew what kind of man Caesar was, theirs was not an exclusive relationship. She was one of many women with whom he slept, albeit their relationship was deeper and longer-lasting than any of the others. Other Roman aristocrats and foreign princesses with whom he shared a bed cannot have bothered her all that much. She doesn't seem to have been the jealous type. But even so, it's impossible to imagine her not feeling at least a twang of something when she heard about Caesar and Cleopatra. Envy, resentment, maybe jealousy. Cleopatra was far younger than Sevilia. Cleopatra was a reigning monarch with an even more prestigious lineage than Sevilia's, and was highly intelligent and cultured. She and Caesar even had a son together, Caesarion, though he was never acknowledged as such. All we have though here is speculation. I'll let you draw your own conclusions. In 46, things kicked up a notch yet again when Servilia's brother, Cato the Younger, committed suicide. Like the other supporters of Pompey, Cato had been forgiven by Caesar. But for an honour-obsessed man like Cato, that was a fate worse than death. See, Cato didn't see Caesar's forgiveness as a magnanimous gesture by a victor to an honoured enemy. He saw it as a master offering clemency to his servant, a king to his subject. In his seminal work, The Roman Revolution, Ronald Syme describes it as, quote, the mercifulness of somebody who can put you to death, that is to say, a god, a tyrant, or a master of slaves. This was not clemency, it was slavery. And while most of the Roman elites swallowed their pride and acknowledged Caesar, Cato would not. Now, suicide may seem somewhat of an overreaction, but it's important to recognise just how much antipathy there was in republican Rome to any notion of monarchy. The glory of Rome was built off the insurrection against its final king and the explicit rejection of rule by a single individual. Those foundations had been tested in recent years, but Plenty still saw the idea of a king as anathema. In his singular and spectacular act of defiance, Cato wounded Caesar in a way that he could never have done had he raised his flag in rebellion. We don't know what Savili's reaction was to her brother's death, but we do know what her son felt. Brutus disapproved of suicide, but that did not stop him from writing a laudatory eulogy to Cato, one that rather ticked off Caesar. He then went a step further, divorcing his wife Claudia and quickly marrying Cato's daughter, Portia. Now, there are a few reasons why he might have done the latter thing. Claudia was the daughter of a prominent Pompeian, whose family was very closely interlinked with that of Pompey. So there were solid political reasons behind the split. She had also not produced a son, and even in Republican Rome, that was a problem. But perhaps the greater reason was that Brutus wanted to position himself as Cato's spiritual successor, as the flag-bearer of anti-monarchism, as the ideological centre of republicanism. Using marriage to make a statement like that is about as old a tactic as you can get. For someone as serious about the importance of family as Sevilla, you might have expected her to approve of her son marrying her niece. Bit incesty to eyes, but perfectly acceptable back then. Keeping it in the family was very much the name of the game. Surely she'd be in favour. But no. She hated everything about it. There are a couple of reasons why. First, this marriage marked a clear break between Brutus and Caesar. You couldn't just marry who you wanted. The identity of your bride and her family connections mattered hugely. Tying the knot was a political statement, far more than a romantic one. But there may also have been a personality clash between the two women. I've said it before, but there was barely enough room for one woman at the apex of political life. Definitely not two. Portia may have wanted to supplant Sevilia as the alpha female in the family, the most important figure in Brutus' life. This is certainly how the ancient sources see it. Cicero, for example, writes about the marriage in a letter to a friend. Quote, it is very distasteful about our friend Brutus, but such is life. The ladies, however, are behaving in a very uncivilised fashion in their hostile attitude towards each other, though both of them do all that propriety requires. I am, though, somewhat wary of ascribing civilious hostility to Portia as being one of petty jealousy. Remember that all our sources here are written by men in a highly patriarchal society, with all the biases that entails. The dismissal and criticism of overly emotional women has always been a part of the misogynistic playbook. This brings us to the conspiracy to kill Caesar on the Ides of March 44. Believe it or not, I wrote this section of the podcast on this year's Ides. It is wonderfully serendipitous when such things line up so perfectly. Brutus, Cassius, and a group of friends and allies were central to the plot. People joined it for various reasons. Some were republican idealists, some unreconstructed Pompeians. People joined out of idealism and patriotism, jealousy and revenge. But also there was a spirit of comradeship amongst the assassins. Only one woman knew of the plot, but it wasn't Sevilla. According to Plutarch, Portia noticed that her new husband was agitated and not sleeping properly, and suspected that he was up to something. Wanting in on the plot, she demonstrated her loyalty the only way she knew how, by stabbing herself in the leg. Understandably, Brutus was somewhat distressed by this radical and unexplained act of self-harm, but Portia explained herself thusly. Brutus, I am Cato's daughter, and I was brought into your house not like a mere concubine to share your bed and board, but to be a partner in your joys and a partner in your troubles. You are indeed faultless as a husband, but how can I show you any grateful service if I am to share in neither your secret suffering nor the anxiety which craves a loyal confidant? I know that a woman's nature is thought too weak to endure a secret, but good rearing and excellent companionship go far towards strengthening the character. It is my happy lot to be both the daughter of Cato and the wife of Brutus. Before this I put less confidence in these advantages – But now I know that I am superior even to pain. This demonstration of loyalty and courage persuaded Brutus to bring her in on the plan, but we're fairly sure he didn't tell his mum. We don't know what Servilia's relationship with Caesar was like in this period. They may still have been lovers, he may have moved on to younger, more regal options, but she was certainly too attached to Caesar to risk bringing her in on a plot to murder him. It was just too big a risk to take. On the evening of the 14th of March 44 BCE, Caesar dined at the house of his friend Lepidus. As his friend and lover, not to mention the host's mother-in-law, it's pretty likely that Sevilla was there too. The conversation turned, as I'm sure it has at every dinner party that you've been to, to the way that you would prefer to die. Caesar responded, suddenly and unexpectedly. He would be granted his wish, the very next day. On the Ides, the 15th of March, 44 BCE, Julius Caesar was attacked and killed on the floor of the Senate in Pompey's theatre by scores of senators, including, of course, Brutus. The assassins labelled themselves the Liberators, but seemingly had no clear plan for what to do once Caesar had been killed. They saw themselves as saviours, but the way they had gone about the assassination, in public, to an unarmed man, a man that they loved, meant that the people turned on them, and quickly. For all their high-minded ideals, the liberators did not have the ruthlessness required to seize the initiative once they had done the deed. Caesar's friends, most notably his loyal lieutenant, Mark Antony, would take full advantage. The liberators needed to launch a full coup d'etat, but the very morals that had led them to kill Caesar prevented them from doing so. To do so would be an act of unconstitutional tyranny, the very thing for which they damned Caesar. We don't know when or how Sevilia learned about her lover's murder, but it must have been quite a shock. She had been around a block a few times. This was not the first person close to her that had suffered a violent death. But even so, her relationship with Caesar was probably the longest and deepest she had with anyone in her life, other than her children. Whatever his faults, and whatever differences she might have had with him, she would have mourned Caesar. But Brutus was her son. Family came first. Always. Not to mention she was related to several other liberators, including the plot's ringleader, Cassius. On the night of the murder, Servilia went around the homes of many senators to try and persuade them to back the liberator cause. She must have been shocked by her son's lack of planning, at the absence of any idea of what to do in the aftermath of his great act. She watched with horror as Antony, using his power as consul, took charge in the Senate and Lepidus led Caesar's troops into the city. Her son and his friends had totally lost control of the situation. Antony addressed his friends, Romans and countrymen, whipping the people into a frenzy at Caesar's funeral, with a speech immortalised by Shakespeare in his play Julius Caesar. Flame-torch-wielding mobs attacked the homes of the honourable men that had killed Caesar and all those associated with them. This would have included Sevilia, but fending off angry mobs wasn't unknown to her, and no doubt she would have made adequate preparations for her home's defence. It was far too dangerous for the men to remain in Rome, and so Bridges and his friends fled the city for their country villas. What were they supposed to do next? The guys had had weeks, months to figure all of this out, and they'd not done it. But now, at least, in Sevilla, they had a professional involved, and she got to work quickly. As the lover of the victim and the mother of his most famous killer, Sevilla was in a prime position to act as a negotiator between the two sides. She regularly travelled between the villas and the city over the next few weeks. It was a febrile time. With the consulship split between Antony and a man called Publius Cornelius Dolabella, one of the most colourful characters in an already technicolour story. A shameless adulterer, profligate spender, and all around bad egg, Dolabella had seized the consulship under dubious pretexts following the death of Caesar with the support of Brutus and Cassius. He was in the Liberator's court, but he was not the sort of man you could trust to take care of your pet goldfish still less defend you in the Senate. Despite Civili's best efforts, though, the Liberator cause remained stubbornly weak. Brutus and Cassius were forced to accept the humiliating job of leading grain commissions to Asia and to Sicily. There was the promise that maybe they could be given provinces in the future, but these were jobs for juniors, not senior senators. If they accepted this figly from Antony, it would be considered shameful, Cato had killed himself over far less. On around the 7th of June 43 BCE, Cicero visited Brutus and Sevilia at their villa, and wrote about what happened in a letter to a friend. Brutus was very pleased to see me. Then, before Sevilia, Tatula, Portia, and many others, he asked me for my opinion. I advised him to accept the control of the grain supply from Asia. There was nothing else for us to do now except keep him out of danger – By so doing, we would have some safeguard for the Republic too. When I was in the midst of my speech, in came Cassius, and I said the same thing over again. Whereupon Cassius, with flashing eyes and a fairly breathing war, declared that he would not go to Sicily. Am I to take an insult like a favour? What will you do then, I asked. And he said he would go to Greece. What of you, Brutus, I said. To Rome, he answered, if you think I ought. I don't think so at all, for you won't be safe, I said. Well, if it would be possible to go there in safety, what would you approve? Yes, I would rather you did not go to a province either now or after your praetorship, but I don't advise you to trust yourself in Rome. I gave them the reasons that will occur to you why it would not be safe. Then they kept on lamenting the chances that had been let slip, especially Cassius, and they complained bitterly of Decimus. I said they should not harp on about the past, but I agreed with them. When I had gone on to explain what ought to have been done, saying nothing new but what everyone is saying daily, your friend Sevilia exclaimed, that I've never heard anyone, but I interrupted her. But I think Cassius will go, for Sevilia promises she will see that the appointment to the Grain Commission shall be withdrawn from the senatorial decree. And our friend soon gave up his silly talk of wanting to go to Rome. So, a lot to unpack there. First of all, it's striking to me how forthright Sevilia appears in this account. She has no compunctioner interrupting Cicero. A windbag, to be sure, but still an important and influential man. She interjected and fought her son's corner. But the key bit comes just after, where Cicero says that Sevilia will ensure that the Grain Commission appointment is rescinded. This is said almost as an aside, like it's a given that she could do this. It's entirely without comment or criticism that Servilia has that kind of power and influence. All we have of Servilia are vignettes, so we're forced to make hay with episodes like this. And what it shows is a woman at the very heart of Roman political life, one of the key players at this crucial time in history. I don't know of any other woman that wielded that kind of power in the dying days of the Roman Republic. Her family, and Cicero, had absolute faith that she could politic Brutus and Cassius out of this humiliation. So, how would she do it? It's unlikely she would have tried to physically tamper with the bill itself. Such things did happen, but it's not something she had in her gift. And moreover, it wouldn't have done her son's cause all that much good. It's not like anyone wouldn't have noticed. More likely, she would have used persuasion tactics familiar to anyone hanging around the bars, tea rooms and hallowed halls of Westminster or Washington. She would go to Rome and do a truly titanic amount of schmoozing, negotiating and charming. It was something she'd done all her life and she was very good at it. Sadly, we don't know how she did it, but it seems that the Grain Commission appointment was dropped and most ascribe the success of this to Sevillia. With Brutus and Cassius unable to enter Rome for fear of, you know, death, Servilia was their main advocate within the city. She was even doing Brutus' jobs for him. Brutus was the urban praetor, and thus responsible for the Games of Apollo, which were due to take place in July 44. But working from home was somewhat harder back then. Brutus could hardly arrange the games from his country villa. So Servilia had to do a lot of the heavy lifting for him, not to mention pay for most of it. If Brutus and Seville had hoped that these gains would turn the tide and bring the people onto his side, they would be disappointed. There was far too much water under this particular bridge, and moreover the gains were overshadowed by a far more lavish and entertaining affair that took place a few weeks later. These were organised by Julius Caesar's heir, the young and ambitious Octavian. Brutus and Cassius needed to get out of Italy, and their allies in the Senate, possibly aided and controlled by Servilia, got them proconsular appointments in the East. This was the opportunity they had been looking for, and took full advantage. Ignoring their new jobs completely, they travelled all over the eastern provinces, taking over cities and raising an army. Servilia stayed in Rome with her ear to the ground and her contacts keeping her informed about the goings-on in places she couldn't penetrate her web was cast over the whole social fabric of Rome. We know that, for example, she was able to pass on news of a revolt in Alexandria to Brutus after having heard it from a slave. The position of the liberators was weak in Rome, but Servilia was fighting a valiant rearguard action. Now, things get real complicated real fast here, but in simple terms, Antony at this point managed to alienate the Senate completely provoking a civil war called the War of Mutina. Brutus and Cassius's only chance was to keep everyone divided, and so this was very welcome news. Servilia would certainly have been in many people's ears, working behind the scenes to play each side off against the other, but they were all outmanoeuvred by Octavian, who took full advantage of all the chaos to have himself named consul, then signed a partnership agreement with Antony and Lepidus. It's known to history as the second triumvirate. Lepidus' decision to side with Antony Octavian was a bitter blow to Servilia. Her son-in-law's betrayal indeed took everyone by surprise. In a letter to Cassius, Cicero slammed, quote, "...the scandalous conduct of your relative Lepidus and his amazing fickleness and inconstancy." Seeing the danger that this group of would-be despots represented, the Senate named them public enemies... This affected not only the three men, but also their families, which was a problem for Sevilia. Family was everything to her, and she didn't want to see her daughter, who, remember, was married to Lepidus, and her grandchildren, ostracised. She and Brutus implored Cicero to intercede with the Senate to spare Junior and the children, and there are a number of letters between them in which Cicero tries and fails to persuade them to abandon Junior. Around the same time, Brutus' wife, Portia, died. There are conflicting stories as to how it happened. Some claim that she committed suicide in a particularly horrible manner. If this sort of thing upsets you, I'd skip ahead for the next 30 seconds. Plutarch relates the story in his Parallel Lives. As for Portia, the wife of Brutus, Nicolaus the Philosopher, as well as Valerius Maximus, relates that she now desired to die, but was opposed by all her friends who kept a strict watch upon her, at which point she snatched up live coals from the fire, swallowed them, and kept her mouth fast closed, and thus made away with herself. Fans of the Shakespeare play will know that Brutus sorrowfully tells Cassius that Portia, quote, swallowed fire. However, even Plutarch doubts this theory, as do many modern historians. Quite apart from anything else, it seems a particularly terrible and painful way to end one's life, when many other options existed. A letter from Brutus references that she had been sick. She may well have just died of natural causes. However it happened, this was a terrible blow for Brutus. And though a mischievous person would see Sevilia as being delighted her female rival had exited stage left, it's far more likely Sevilia would have mourned the passing of her daughter-in-law. So, the Senate and the Triumvirate were at loggerheads, which presented an opportunity for Brutus and Cassius to return to Rome at the head of an army and seize the initiative. Cicero was certainly urging them to do so, and wrote of another council meeting in a letter to Brutus in July 43. Quote, I was asked by that most prudent and careful lady, your mother, whose every thought and care are directed and devoted to you, to call on her on the 24th of July, which, as in Duty Bound, I at once did. She opened the subject and asked me my opinion, whether we should ask you to come to Italy, and whether we thought that to your advantage, or whether it were better that you should put it off and stay where you were. I answered, as is my real opinion, that it was of the highest advantage to your position and reputation to bring help at the first possible moment to the tottering and almost prostrate Republic. It's clear from this that Servilia is in charge of this meeting, and was there representing her son's interests. Again, this may not seem like a big deal, but it's pretty much the only confirmed example we have in ancient sources of a Roman woman sharing a meeting like this. It just wasn't the done thing for them to be in charge, and Cicero writes of it as if it were nothing, like this sort of thing happened all the time with Servilia. Now, she may not have been unique about this, It may just be an accident of the sources that her meeting was recorded and others were not. This may not exactly be a glass ceiling shattering moment, but if nothing else, it shows once more just how normalised Sevilius' presence in such crucial moments had become. In the event, Brutus and Cassius remained in the east, leaving Rome wide open to the Triumvirs. They took over and punished the assassins of Julius Caesar. Their property was seized and they were condemned to death, along with anyone helping them in any way. Anyone with any information on their whereabouts, or who killed them, would be rewarded. Their families would be heavily fined with the proceeds used to fund a new war against Brutus and Cassius. Sevilia, who was still in Italy, went into hiding, probably with her friend Atticus. She wasn't on the prescriptions list, but it was still a precarious existence. She did, though, have to pay the fine, in effect partially funding the war against her son. The following year, Antony and Octavian led their armies into Greece and fought Brutus and Cassius at Philippi. Back in Italy, Servilia would have waited anxiously for news, fervently hoping that her son would emerge triumphant. But, of course, he would not. He, Cassius, and the Roman Republic itself died at Philippi. On those blood-soaked fields in Greece, Sevilia lost not only her son and son-in-law, but also her nephew, and niece and a whole host of other family members. At a stroke, an entire generation of her family tree was cut down or fell on their sword. She had lost almost everything. You can only imagine the grief and the anguish. All she had left were her three daughters, and she would likely have dedicated the rest of her life to her protection. Of course, one of them, the second junior, had also lost her husband. Servilia is, though, fairly absent from the sources from here on in. We know basically nothing about what happens next. All we do know is that she went under the protection of Atticus and lived out the rest of her life in mourning. She could have lived another year. She could have lived 20. We just don't know. She certainly didn't stab herself in front of Attia of the Julii, that is an invention of the writers of Rome. It is, I'll admit, a rather unsatisfactory end to the life of this rather remarkable woman. She may not have been the mastermind, the sexual tentress that some of the sources and modern TV adaptations would have you believe, but she was there in one of the most storied and famous periods in European history. She was an actress, an important one, in that great drama. One of the few women with great influence over those events. The lover of a tyrant, the mother of his killer, and the only one of them that would survive to see the fall of the Republic, and the start of a new imperial age.